All right. Well, hey, it is so good to be back with you guys um, today. I'm very excited uh, about the word that God has uh, given us to lean into. And uh, how, how about the, let's just take a minute and uh, celebrate what needs to be celebrated. We survived a blizzard. Now, here's the thing. It's crazy to think that that was seven days ago as I was sweating outside. Isn't that just beautiful about Texas? Now, I have to say, when the forecast started coming in that we potentially could get snow, I have lived in central Texas for almost my whole life. I had about an eight-year window when I was on the West Coast. With the rest of that, a born and bred central Texas boy. And, and so when I saw that snow could be coming... I was cautiously optimistic. Anybody else? I'm like, yeah, I've seen this forecast before, you know, and this is when like the infamous, like it's snowing, but it's really not snowing, but it's like Texas snowing. And we all go outside and we're like, it's snowing, you know, and it's like one flake. We're looking for the snow, right? Now my kids went the other direction. My kids saw forecast snow. It was full on confident expectation. It's going to dump, Dad. It says 100%. Now, I said to them, you are probably wrong. Now, I have to be real with you that they did not let me live those words down the entire day. As we were driving from church back home, my son Tate was like, I told you, Dad. I told you, Dad. Dad, look at it. This is snow. I said it was going to snow, and it is snowing. Now, I have to be honest with you, man. It was fun. Right? Did you have a good time? Man, we sledded in our neighborhood. We sledded. We had a snowball fight. Man, it was a great, we built a snowman. My kids built the biggest, like they couldn't even complete the snowman because they made the middle portion so big they couldn't lift it. And then they said, Dad, you come lift it. I'm like, nah, man, I'm old. I'm not getting out there. It's cold, right? Then we had to explain that this was like the first kind of real snow uh, that, that our twins experienced. And, and, and I have to be honest with you, Kevin and Ernest were a little disappointed at how cold the snow was. <laughs> right? And then we just started constantly quoting the movie Cool Runnings for the rest of the day. Right? Ice? Some of y'all know that. You, some of you know that. But that was... We, it, was, it was wonderful. And I have to say, like, when I was standing on, the, on my back porch watching it, like, dump snow. And my neighborhood was covered in white. You, I was struck by the power of things being covered. Uh, my neighborhood where I have lived since I moved down here looked like a new place because it was covered. And I was reminded of 2 Corinthians 12 as I'm looking at the, the, the physical, the natural representation, the natural picture of something being covered and something that changes what it looks like. And I was reminded of this passage where Paul is actually asking God to remove from him a struggle. He called this struggle a thorn in his flesh. We don't know if this was a cultural struggle 
We don't know if it was a relational struggle. We don't know if it was a personal struggle. But what we do know is that it was so heavy that Paul, the mountain of a man, the, the theologian of theologians, the apostle of apostles, is asking for reprieve from the weight of what he was going through. And God responds this way in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You know, I have found myself pleading with God over these past weeks for breakthrough in our nation. Seeing God, it's getting harder and harder to breathe. It's getting harder and harder to believe that something beautiful can come from what looks like ashes. And I find myself pleading with the Lord, God, would you come? Would you meet us? Would you remove this? Would you end it? Would you shift it? We're in this marathon of chaos and confusion and division and pain. God, would you come? And I feel like the same words that God spoke to Paul, he's speaking to us. My grace is sufficient for you. And, and as we got to see in the natural that, that snow covered our city, let us see in the spiritual that the sufficient grace of God is covering us today. That he is with us. You know, last week, Pastor Chris did a phenomenal job. Did you guys enjoy hearing from Pastor Chris? He did an absolutely beautiful job of kicking off our series of talks that we're calling The Wall. And we, we tried to be clever uh, with this, this series title because as we've entered into the year 2021, and, and, and we always start the year with expectation, right? Confident expectation that good is going to come. We, we always start the year that way. This year kind of just feels like a continuation, right? It's like all the pain, all the division, all the chaos, all the confusion that we went to sleep with at the end of December, we woke up to in January. And so instead of 2021, feeling like it's a new start, let, let's, let's get some fresh goals. Let's get some big vision. Let's let, let like, woo! It kind of feels like mile 21 of a pain marathon. And there's this phenomenon that happens when you run marathons, I have heard. Okay? Like, I have a personal goal to never run a marathon. And I, I am committed to achieving that goal. But I have heard that when you do these really, really long races... That there's just something that happens when you run a marathon around mile 21, and it's referred to as the wall. And the long and the short of it is, is that the pain gets like this. It gets so high, you're, you're entering into waters that you probably have not entered into before, and you start asking yourself the question, is it worth it? That's ultimately what the wall is. Is the pain that I'm going through worth the reward that I'm going to receive at the end of the race? 
And I just want to say that the wall is not just something that a few people experience on the highways of marathons across the world. I believe that the wall is something that all of us face all the time because we are living in a tension of is it worth what I'm going through to believe in what is coming? And this tension, this, this need to keep leaning in is something that we really want to try to establish right off the bat that it is mission critical, not just for us as a church, but you as a human being to encounter the power of the gospel that perseveres. That, that, that our walk with God has never been about making life easier. It's always been about how much more of God can I encounter. And so what we've been doing is leaning in. And, and Chris did an amazing job of opening this tension for us. It's like, is what I'm going through worth what's coming, right? And so we've used this anchor passage of Hebrews 12, verse 1, that, that says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Now, there's a couple of things that, that are significant for us as we begin to lean into what God has for us today. And I believe that one of them is that we, that we understand that the form that we're reading this passage in this morning is not the same form that was given in the writer's original intent. What I mean is, is that when the writer of Hebrews wrote these words, he did not divide chapter and verse. He wrote a letter. Chapter and verse was put in later so that we could find stuff without memorizing all of it. But something happens sometimes as we then begin to see things as separate thoughts versus a continuation of the same thought. It's important that Hebrews 12 is seen through the lens of Hebrews 11. That the writer of Hebrews wrote it as a continual thought, not as two separate distinct thoughts, but they are to work in conjunction with one another. They are married together, and although they can seem separate, the tension actually brings unity. Hebrews 11 is often referred to as the faith chapter. Hebrews 11.1 opens by defining for us what faith really is. And it says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Can I say that again? Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Verse 2, this is what the ancients were commended for. Now, this is chapter 11 here. And we're just going to speed bump over this, okay? Can we, can we jump through it a little bit? What's going to happen over the next verses before we get to chapter 12 is literally a list, the Faith Hall of Fame, of all the heavy hitters in the Old Testament that believed God and believed the promises of God no matter what they lived through. They were unwavering in their belief of what God had spoken to them and the character of the God who gave them the promise regardless of what they saw or didn't see. 
This is the, 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 the absolute quintessential picture of what it means to live by faith, which is the assurance of what we hope for. It's not the assurance of what we see. This, this is it. And, and what we see in Hebrews 11 verse 39 is that after there's this massive list of like Abraham and Moses and all these gods that did unbelievable things in the face of unbelievable opposition and pain and confusion and chaos, it says this in verse 39, that they, they were all commended for their faith, yet none of them, can I say that? None of them. This is going to help somebody. None of them received what they had been promised. These are the heroes. These are the legends. This is the Hall of Fame. And it says that none of them received what had been promised. Listen to this next sentence because this gets encouraging for you. How many of you are thankful that some other, sometimes it's other people's pain that allows you to walk in victory? Ooh, that'll help you. God had planned something better for us. God had planned something better for us so that only together, only together, those who struggled before and those who will walk in the victory, only together would we be made perfect. You see, faith is never forgetting what's coming in light of what's happening. It's never forgetting why you got in the race when the race starts getting hard to run. Faith is never forgetting what's coming in light of what is happening. In our faith, don't miss this, is not measured by what we see, but our faith in heaven is measured by how we believe. And hear me, how we believe will shape how we live. How we believe will shape how we live. And then we get into Hebrews 12. They're connected. You know how I know it's connected? Because it says, therefore. Some of you have heard me make this joke. It's a good one. There's this old Baptist preacher, and he used to say to his congregation, every time you read the Bible, therefore, you better understand what it's there for. <laughs> so all of these, like the, 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 the faith hall of fame. All the promises they believed for. The reality that none of them saw the fulfillment of everything that they had been told that they would see. And then Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And, and last week, right, like the, the whole thing was we leaned into the truth that our cloud that surrounds us is those who went before us and those who are walking with us. And we need to be mindful of the voices that we allow close to us because our cloud will shape our behavior. Your cloud will shape what you can believe for. Hear me. If you are surrounded by a bunch of people that think that divorce is an option, you will too think divorce is an option. Because your cloud will shape and, and influence your direction. 
If, if your cloud believes that God can do the impossible, then guess what? You will too believe that God can do the impossible. It's not a revelation of the weakness of your faith as an individual. It is a picture that we are called to walk in a cloud. That we need each other and we need to be mindful of those that we allow to influence us because influence will shape behavior, both positive and negative. But then we find ourselves entering into the passage of Scripture that God has highlighted for us to lean into today. And it says this, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. There are things in our lives that are not wrong but can still keep us from running the race that God has for us. It's going to be tough today. There are things in our lives that are not wrong, but are not good. They are not sin, but they are not helpful. There are things in all of our lives that hinder us from running the race, and can I say, running the race at the pace that God has for us. This is huge because I think most of us spend most of our time doing the best that we can to stay away from the sin that so easily entangles us that we look right past the things that are hindering us. The sin is easy to see. That, that is not hard. The sin that so the sin part is not the hard part. Like, like, like take an old classic like lying. Okay, like you find yourself in a bit of a pinch. You think like, yo, if I just bend the truth just a little bit then maybe the, the coming wrath of what I did or didn't do won't be as great. But I don't care if you are a Bible reader, a Jesus believer or not, you know that lying is wrong. And before you bend the truth, it's so easy to do. But before those words exit your mouth, you are fully aware of the fact that what you are getting ready to say is easy, but is not right. Leviticus 19.11, do not lie. Okay, it's there. It's easy, right? Like lying is wrong 100% of the time. And lying 100% of the time equals a bigger mess than the potential mess of the truth. Why? Because lying is a sin. But that is not hard for us to see. Nobody in here is like, yo, I'm struggling. I'm wondering if sin is helpful in my life. No. You're like, yeah, I know that lying is not helpful for me. I know that lying is not helping me. That This is a sin that so easily entangles us. It's easy to do, but it entangles us and it keeps us from what God has for us. But what about the things that hinder us? 
They're, they're separate in Hebrews. It, it doesn't say the, the sin that hinders you. It says, no, the sin that entangles you and the things that hinder you. So, so what about these, these things that, that hinder us? I, I, I leaned into a few different translations of this scripture, and this is how it plays out. Lay aside every weight. Amen. Amen. Lay, lay aside every weight or lay aside every encumbrance. Look, for, from time to time, I, I will run or work out wearing a weighted vest. Don't ask me why. I still don't know. I think it looks cool. You know, so I'll run like three minutes, hope a couple of neighbors see me and check the box. <laughs> right, but, but here's what I've learned working out and running wearing a weighted vest. The difficulty of the task that I am attempting to perform is exponentially harder wearing weight that my body was not designed to carry. A hundred percent of the time. A one-mile jog can feel like a marathon. Now, again, I'm committed to never running more than a mile. So that is my marathon. In the, in the words of our culture, that's my truth. Now, I don't believe that, but just for the sake of giggles. When I'm attempting to do something, it's exponentially harder on my body when I'm wearing weight that I was not designed to carry. Look, the writer of Hebrews is telling us here in Hebrews 12.1 that there are things in our lives that are not sinful, but they are weights that we are carrying around and they're not helpful. Therefore, making the race marked out for us exponentially more difficult to do because of the weight, the things that are hindering us, the things that are in, encumbering us from doing the things that God has called us to do. And if you leave with one thing that I say today, let it be this. When the struggle that we are in gets bigger than our intimacy with Jesus, things break down. When the struggle that we are in gets bigger than our intimacy with Jesus, things break down. When the weight that we are carrying, when the things in our lives that hinder us get bigger than our connection to our life with Jesus, things begin to break down. Now, if you have your Bible with you or if you have your phone and you have the Bible out, I want you to jump with me to Luke 5, verse 1. Luke 5, verse 1. This is a passage of Scripture that probably all of you have read. If you've read your Bibles, this is a famous passage of Scripture. But what I'm hoping to do today is allow us to see some of the tension that is in this passage and not just simply the call and the miracle that's at the surface of this passage. And it says this, one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gensinarite, the people were crowded around him. Did you like how I said that lake? And the people were crowded around him. You don't know how to say it either, so don't judge me. And if you do, don't email me. Chris will get it. And listened to the word of God. 
And he saw at the water's edge two boats, and they left by their fishermen who were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, and one belonged to Simon. And he asked him to put out a little from the shore, and he sat down, and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, man, we've worked hard all night. We haven't caught anything. But because you said so, I'll let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled for their partners on the boat to come and to help them. And they came and they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' feet and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners, And then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. Look at verse 11. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. This is your first time to read Luke 5. This is when Jesus began to call men to follow him, to be his disciples. Three of those men are mentioned in this passage. This is a significant moment, not just in the life of Jesus, but in the life of these fishermen. But, but, but understand this. Peter would become Simon Peter. His name would change from Simon to Peter. Peter would become a leader the foundation, Jesus looked at him and said, you are the rock on which I'm going to build my church. This is who Simon Peter was to become. But right now, he was just a fisherman. You see, Peter didn't know who Jesus was. Peter probably didn't even, have never even seen him before. But what Peter did know is how to fish. This was his job. Most likely, this was also his father's job. Most likely, it was also his grandfather's job. If Peter knew anything, it was how to fish this lake. He had probably grown up fishing on this lake. Peter knew when, where, and how to fish on this lake to catch fish. And and it says that they had worked all night, and they had caught nothing. That they had been working in the dark, staying up, hoping that the next net pool was going to be filled with fish. Because it was their livelihood on the line. This was not something that they did recreationally just to let's see how many bass we could catch in Ladybird. This was how they made their money. Peter did not know Jesus, but he did know how to fish. Understand, when Jesus told Peter to go back out into the lake in the middle of the day when everybody knows who's ever been fishing, that's not when you fish. 
There was not just a coming miracle. Peter found himself in the middle of an internal struggle. Because there's no way Peter, a professional fisherman, was not as frustrated as heck to have this man who he had never seen before tell him to go out into deep water in the middle of the day and throw his nets down in the same water that he had thrown his nets down probably hundreds of times before, the night before, and came up empty. It's got to be equally as frustrating as when you're trying to open a jar in the kitchen and your child comes up and says, let me try. <laughs> oh, help me, Jesus. I've started this phrase in my house where I just start saying, hey, one of the kids, pray for me. Somebody pray. That's frustrating. You're like, dude, okay, I'm a little bigger than you here. If I can't get it, you probably can't get it. Right? This is like a hundred times as frustrating. This guy who is not a fisherman telling Peter, a professional fisherman, go in the lake you fished your whole life and do what you did all night just one more time. I think as we enter into this season that we're in, in this new year, but running the same race, it can kind of feel a little bit like throwing our nets in the water in the middle of the day, knowing that we're not going to catch anything. It's getting hard to keep believing for breakthrough. It's getting hard to keep standing in faith when it feels like things are getting worse and not better. We've seen things in the past weeks I never thought that I would see. Heard things I never thought that I would hear. And it's getting harder and harder to stand in faith. Loving Jesus, uncompromised in the truth of who he is, filled with the Holy Spirit, living from the fruit of the Spirit. It's getting harder. It feels like we're fishing all night long and catching nothing. Galatians 6, 9 says this, let us not become weary in doing good. Did you hear me, church? Let us not become weary in doing good, for at a proper time, we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Look, you don't know when you're going to pull that net up and your nets are not empty, but they're full. Are you hearing me? Perseverance is keeping putting your net in the water. You know what to live a life of faith is, 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 is to not get an empty heart when you have empty nets. Are you hearing me? To, to live a life of faith is to say, I'm going to keep putting my net in the water. I, I'm going to not grow weary of doing good. I'm not going to grow weary of standing for truth. I'm not going to grow weary of standing for righteousness. I'm not going to grow weary of having the minority opinion. I'm not going to grow weary of saying Jesus is my answer. I'm not going to grow weary of saying I reject the idolatry of our nation, saying that it's a physical leader that is my leader. No, Jesus is my leader. And I'm not going to become weary. I'm not going to get tired of it. I'm going to keep leaning into it. I'm going to persevere. I'm going to run the race that's set before me because I don't know when we're going to reap a harvest. We don't know when the turn's going to be. We don't know when that next 
net is going to be so full that we got to call in another boat because it's just too much. Our race of faith is keeping a full heart even when we are in a season of having empty nets. But hear me, it's in that struggle. It's in that struggle that we will begin to look to things to lean on. Maybe not sin that entangles us, but we will be looking for a way out of the weight of the struggle that we feel. And it's in those moments that we will stumble into things that hinder us. I believe that one of the most dangerous aspects of what I see happening more and more in culture and honestly becoming more and more a mainstream thought and and what I'll just call cultural Christianity is the misapplication of one of the most powerful parts of our Christian faith, and that is grace. We often justify the things that hinder us under the umbrella of a misapplication of the grace that God has given us. Grace simply defined is the unmerited favor of God. Or or you could say it's the love and mercy given to us by God because God desires us to have it. Not because of anything that we've done to earn it. This is the grace of God. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says this, For it's by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Rightly understanding God's grace and its impact on our lives is Huge, because how we see grace will also give us a fresh lens to see not just the sin that so easily entangles us, but the things that might be hindering us. And if I can steal the words from an academic, a pastor, a theologian, an almost assassin, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who was a mountain of a man, loved Jesus passionately, stood for truth to the point of trying to assassinate Hitler and ultimately losing his life. Bonhoeffer saw the impact and coming destruction of the misunderstanding of the way grace really is used in our Culture, and he called this misunderstanding of the richness of the grace of God as cheap grace. And I'm going to read a quote from Bonhoeffer because there's no way that I could be this eloquent. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin and the conciliation of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace 
without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance. And because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. The baptism without the church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. But costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field for the sake of all mankind. Costly grace is the treasure that the man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ of whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciples leave their nets and begin to follow him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock and keep knocking. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. It's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it cost a man his life. And it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it's costly because it cost God the life of his son. Our right understanding of grace will color our lives. It will shape our behavior. It will guide our decisions. It will shine a light on the things in us and around us that might be hindering us. Grace is the love and mercy given to us by God because God desires us to have it, not because of anything that we've done to earn it. And really encountering the God who gives us this grace, encountering who he really is, in that encounter, it will change everything about us. It will change how we live. It will change what we see as possible. It will change what we see as, as what hinders us because it's a grace that demands that we follow him. It's a costly grace. It's not a cheap grace. And in our passage, Peter, after a long struggle, put his nets in the water just one more time and he caught more fish maybe than he's caught in his entire life. And then Jesus looks at him. He encountered the person of Jesus. Jesus looks at him and he says, come follow me. And without missing a beat, he left 
everything. He left that cash out of fish. He left the boat that he had saved his life for. He had he left the nets that were his livelihood. Was fishing wrong? No. But sometimes the things we're leaning on for security are hindering us from the race that God has for us. And Peter said, I am going to give you everything. I'm going to follow you with everything. I, I know that for, for all of us, we're feeling the weight of the things that hinder us right now. And, and that, that, could, that could be a weight of shame. It, 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 you, yeah, you're carrying around a weight of shame because you're, you're terrified. That if, if people found out who you really were, that there's no way that they would accept you for who you are. And, and that, that shame is weighty on you. It, it, it's making the race that God has for you hard. Some of you are, are, are carrying the weight of pain and disappointment because of the way that you've been treated in relationships. Some of you in church, maybe in your marriage. And, and that weight is making running the race that God has for you really, really challenging. So some, of, some of the weight that some of you are feeling right now, it's just the weight of fear. What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen on Wednesday? What, what, what's this week going to look like? I don't know if I can take one more bit of bad news. And that weight is heavy. It hinders us. It weighs on us. And the invitation for us is to step into God's costly grace to, to step into the grace of God today a costly grace that cost him everything so that he can rule over everything and all we have to do is receive it and, and, and when we receive it his grace allows us to throw off everything that hinders us To, to throw off the sin that, that so easily entangles us. And we want to create some space for all of us to take a minute and respond to what God is doing right now. And, and I know for some of you, you know you're not living right right now. The sin that so easily entangles, you're aware of it, it's easy to see and the invitation for you is to come to the father this morning and allow him to encounter you because when you encounter him there's freedom in that place some of you have never you've never given your life to Jesus you're here this morning because you're looking for a way out you're asking questions and you stumbled into church or maybe you're watching this online and you're asking that question like how can I keep going the answer is you can't that it, we, we, have to, we have to throw off the things that are hindering us. We have to remove the sin that so easily entangles us. And we have to run the race marked out for us. And that's following Jesus with everything that we have. And, and, and if you're here or if you're watching this and you've never given your life to Jesus in a minute, today's your day. I want everybody to stand to your feet. Even if you're watching this at home, I want you to stand to your feet. I want to pray for us. And look, I want, I want to ask if you're here today and, and there are things in your life that you are aware that is hindering you. There, there are things that are, are making the race that God has lined out for you 
harder. They're not wrong, but they're not good. And you're like, I need to encounter Jesus, the, the one who gives a grace that will shift how I believe, shift what I see, shift how I live. I want you to boldly raise your hand because I want to pray for you. And if you're, if you're in the house today and you've never given your life to Jesus, I want you to raise your hand as well. If you need breakthrough from the things that are hindering you, or if you want to give your life to Jesus, I want to see you. I see those. Come on, keep them up. Keep them up. God, I'm asking right now for every one of my friends to be filled by the power of the Holy Spirit, that they would not grow weary of doing good, but they would press on, that they would run the race, that they would persevere, and God, that they would have wisdom and eyes to see the things that are hindering them, the sin that so easily entangles them, God, and that they would throw it off as they look in your eyes and gaze upon who you are and who you've called them to be, and God, I'm asking that right now, by the grace of heaven, that you would touch hearts that have never surrendered to you, and if you want to give your life to Jesus, just pray this with me. Jesus, I give my life to you. I surrender myself to you. Forgive me of my sin. Wash me clean. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. My life is yours. It is not my own. Thank you, Jesus. I've been bought with a price. My life will never be the same. In the name of Jesus, everybody said, amen.